wrap our identities up with outcome and we are not a good person unless we win. If people can separate out performance and outcome from their sense of self, they've had higher levels of performance. Cambridge Settle was set up so I could send my children to a really good school. That was it. I think what people can do is keep moving the bar for success for themselves so that they never actually feel successful. And if I just look at it and think, this is what Cambridge Settle was set up to do, along the way, I got to do so much more. Hello and welcome to the Track Record Podcast. Each and every episode, we are asking leading performers in sport and business, what does it take to win? Um, and this week, we've got two very special guests who um, share similarities that only we've picked up so far. Uh, let's see if we pick them up through the show. And like the first question I'm keen to ask both of you. Um, so Danny, you're head coach of the men's hockey team. You've been head coach of the women's hockey team. Uh, Julie, you're a CEO of uh, the Satchel Company and um, you've both had incredible levels of success followed by dips, let's call them that, and then being able to find success again. And my question really is to both of you, like, what did you learn through those dips? And I'm not even going to like put a label to those dips. I'll, I'll let you guys determine what those dips were. But Julie, if I throw to you, first of all, what did you learn through those, those difficult times in between those uh, moments of success? I'm CEO of the Cambridge Satchel Company, but I love that you call it the Satchel Company because that takes out all of those would-be satchel companies out there, um, uh, of, of which more sprung up than I would ever have believed possible. There was a, a massive meteoric rise, which was very hard to handle. But um, in other ways, you know, all those people that would come and say, oh, first world problem, even though I felt like it was the worst problem in the world, <laughs> um, I was sort of struggling to to keep on top of it. But then, yes, some some very, very big, big dips. Finding my manufacturer was taking the leather and making bags with his own label on it. Uh, so having a bit of a, a reaction of, I can't work with you anymore. And so that meant that I didn't have a manufacturer, but I did have 16,000 people waiting for satchels. That that was that was definitely a dip, and I think that at points like that, there is, there is basically there is an option of, this is too hard, this is horrible, and this is not what I want to do. I'm going to step away from this. This this is not for me, or the I am I'm going to stick to this like a a bloodhound with her nose to the scent and go across even even if it's a dual carriageway and I'm going to keep walking and and. For whatever reason, I took the second one and decided that, um, I'm not entirely sure why, but I decided that I was totally capable of setting up my own sort of workshops and manufacturing <laughs> plant uh, and overcoming this slight hurdle. So I think that, thank goodness I did, because, you know, to own our manufacturing is one of the biggest advantages that we have. To have British manufacturing is a fantastic advantage. Um, but gosh, that is a time that I would never, ever want to go through again. And Danny? Yeah, so dip is an interesting term. Um, 
So I would describe two, in inverted commas, dips, uh, two significant dips. So post the Beijing Olympic Games, I, I'd been in post for about three and a half years. I, I felt I'd um, given everything, um, most of my, if not all of my waking moments to sort of doing as best as I could by the team. And um, we finished sixth in, in Beijing, which uh, reached a certain level of target, which allowed us to have very good funding through to the London Olympic Games in 2012. But I knew even before departing Beijing that I'd essentially lost the playing group um, or large swathes of the playing group, I should say. And really through very good intentions, I'd been sort of your, what I what I deemed to be your classic performance coach. So very sort of technically, tactically minded, very driven, very challenging, very demanding. And for a large number of those athletes made what should have been possibly one of the absolute highlights of their lives, a, a pretty tough experience. And sort of had little or no capacity to sort of build relationships, build trust with the athletes, just so overtly focused on technical, tactical expertise and just very challenging around um, standards of performance that weren't perhaps where expected them to be. And as a result of that, um, in the Olympic debrief programme, the athletes and staff were pretty blunt and essentially said the experience they'd had in Beijing was uh, was tough, not enjoyable. They described me as grumpy, miserable, unapproachable, and they're the words I can use on a podcast. And as a result, you know, I was very upset. I felt, um, I felt I'd been stabbed in the back. Um, I felt I'd given everything, but the reality was I I didn't have the skills to to sort of work with athletes at that level. I had no real self awareness. I had real no appreciation of others, and no real empathy for what the athletes were going through. So it was a big sort of uh, mirror being held up, and realised you know I needed to change, and that really started with myself. Fortunate to keep my post as head coach of the Olympic program through to London, but I was really adamant that I would try to address those 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 aspects. So that was sort of dip. I love that phrase, dip number one. And then probably then on a personal dip uh, in twenty seventeen, I was out with a women's team, um, sort of a year on for the Olympic Games where we where we'd done very well. A year on from the Rio. I was out in Johannesburg with the team and um, we played Germany, we played exceptionally well. We'd won 1-0. I'd gone to my room that evening, felt a bit odd, felt a bit anxious is how I'd describe it. Um, couldn't sleep and then about three, four o'clock in the morning I got rushed into intensive care um, with a heart attack. So relatively young, 46. So real moment of introspection, real moment of perspective about what do you enjoy in life, what's important in life. Um, and interestingly, a lot of people ask me in the days post uh, sort of surgery and, you know, surely now you're going to stop being a coach. And ironically, that line of thinking wasn't in my head. I really loved and enjoyed what I do, but it was a real perspective moment around understanding I love what I do so one and but also two just putting it in a, in a position of it's sport it's it's not it's not family it's not life or death 
it is very, very important to people's sense of identity and what they want out of life, but a real perspective setting moment. I'd rather not have had that perspective moment through that process, but I am actually quite grateful for the perspective it's given me. And it's interesting because I'm, what I'm hearing from both of you in those instances, and Danny, you've used the word identity, in terms of having moments where you're almost having to pause and reconfirm the identity that you're wanting to choose. And it's a choice going forward. And Julie, I remember when we spoke to you prior to the podcast, perspective was a word you used a lot as well in terms of the identity of the brand, your identity, having to almost redefine the boundaries of that at different points. It's so important because it has a profound impact when you start questioning yourself. Um, And when I went through the whole issue with the manufacturer, one of the the, the the biggest impacts was I was left with this feeling that, you know, I should have seen it coming. I didn't, I didn't see that this was going on. You know, how could I, I'm, I started feeling like, obviously now I'm a bad judge of character. You know, I can't trust my, um, my sense of this is a good person. This is a bad person. This is someone I can work with. This isn't someone I can work with. And when you have that that real falter in the faith that you've had in yourself previously, then then that's a really really tough one. And I remember afterwards, you know, I I questioned everything. It was like, well, why would he have done that when he was making more on every bag than I was making? You know, why did I do something that made him dislike me so much that he wanted to do that? So it was. Not that long after, I'd say about four or five months after, when then I had a phone call, you know, saying, oh, we we have an amazing opportunity for you, but we can't tell you all the details of it yet. But we need to know more details about the business and more details about the workshops that have been set up and more details about the, the finances behind it. And I was just thinking, no, you know, I'm not trusting anyone on, you must think I was born yesterday, go away. And so I, for, they were, they were very, very, um, they were resilient. You know, I'd knock them back and they'd jump back and say, no, you can't miss out on this. This is a great opportunity. And I just kept saying, no, 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 go away. I'm not telling anybody anything ever again. (laughs) That's that's it. I'm done with that. Um, But in the end, they, they just kept coming back and and so um they said we'll send you a non-disclosure agreement and if you sign that we'll be able to tell you what this opportunity is and then you'll understand why you don't want to turn it down and and so i remember sitting with my mum sort of watching this this non-disclosure agreement sort of pound out of the printer and it was so big and it was so long and and my mum who's always the greatest sort of source of common sense she sort of looked and she said <laughs> well, Julie, if this is a joke, they've got a, to an awful lot of trouble. <laughs> and so I signed this um, this NDA, and it turned out that this was the Google advert. You know, um, this was to 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 be the face of Google Chrome on their adverts in the UK and um, an island in the cinema and on TV. And so that was obviously it was a huge opportunity that I had almost missed because I had lost that faith in my own judgment. And so that 
that's one thing I look back on and I, and I think it's so important to be resilient and to sort of just say these bad things happen sometimes, you know, and you're going to have these dips. <laughs> you know, thank goodness I, I did take that chance and decide to to just take a risk again because otherwise you just, you can't move forward and what an opportunity that would have been had I missed it. And Danny, when you had that moment after Beijing and you realised it would take a total kind of re-go everything you knew almost and how you did it, where did you start with that? I was lucky. I was on a UK sport project known as Elite Coach. There was a cohort of, of, of 10 in my particular year from across sort of multiple Olympic sports and it was a sort of a feedback rich environment and a lot of formal psychometric evaluation plus a lot of peer-to-peer feedback and and so this sort of whole Beijing experience plus this UK sport elite coach program that I was involved in over the three years was a real milieu of experiential feedback and my overriding sense was how how powerful it had been sort of for me and I was sort of pretty adamant that I, I felt that athletes would also benefit from sort of this journey of self-discovery, self-awareness for want of a better phrase and I thought okay well I, I definitely need to have a good look, long hard look at myself, I definitely need to be a, a hell of a lot better in many many facets but the starting point was around self-awareness and I felt maybe I could roll out a, a, a sort of significant project across the staff and the athletes to sort of replicate the similar journey that I'd had because it sort of had you know, the ability to unlock a lot of potential. And similar to Julie, um, it was actually my now wife, uh, Lisa, when I received the, the, the pretty tough, brutal feedback, she, she was sort of captured the moment she says well you're not really that person that's just your professional demeanor that you carry around with you um so this is not going to be a big shift for you and I'm like thinking it feels like a big shift <laughs> but she was right you know um they just hadn't they I they just hadn't seen it seen sort of me to a degree and, uh, and it was just my ability in that performance space to sort of not be an act but just be me just try and be congruent with me which sounds easy but um, we all have our layers that we sort of protect our sense of self with and it was sort of trying to operate in a way that, well, building the relationships, letting people in, spending time showing interest in others sort of became my journey through the London cycle and then I would say sort of through to, to, to present day that that is now something that um, I can tap into pretty pretty easily. I'm still someone that thinks a lot. I live inside my head a great deal, so under pressure, that can come can come across as sort of un, you know slightly unapproachable because I'm just mulling or stuff. But I'm now very aware of that, um, and I, I will ask myself, you know, where am I? Where do I need to be? Where, where are others? Where do they need to be? And that's my little self-regulation mantra that I use. So I've tried to take my athletes and staff in our programs on a similar journey. Mm. Oh, I'm beginning to see why you've paired us. <laughs> this is horrible. I felt like <laughs> this is really, really bad. But I, I sort of think that Danny's done it a lot better than I've done it. Um, because I also just completely live in my head, you know, and 
and I see what needs to be done. Um, and that's my only interest is getting there. And I have such blinkers. And and so my first instinct, I'll want to write an email, say, to ask somebody, you know, well, why didn't the fan work on that machine? So I'll have an email and I'll just literally write, why didn't the fan work on that machine? And sort of press send. And now I've, um, I've, I have had a few people suggest, you know, this... <laughs> take an interest in in sort of others and other things but all I want to know is why the fan didn't work on the machine <laughs> and and there's this horrible thing of you don't want to sound really false so you sort of you, you see the email and it says why didn't the fan work on the machine and then and then you sort of insert at the beginning hello I hope you had a good weekend why didn't the fan work on the machine <laughs> yeah Julie I'm giggling away here because exactly the same so you sort of think sitting there thinking you know you can fall into that realm of feeling like you're being manipulative but the, the reality is you know there is a function to be performed work needs to be done I think what I've tried to do is spend a lot of time with the athlete group with the staff group so they sort of understand where I'm coming from and so if they do receive a question like why didn't the fan work on the machine they realize that I still care about them deeply and dearly, but I still want to know why the fan on the machine didn't work. But prior to that, people wouldn't understand that actually I I do care about them. And the reason I'm asking you around about the, the fan on the machine or whatever it might be is because we're all invested in this this big project. We want this big project to work and because I want it to work for, for us, for them. But that can come across if it is as as the opposite and just cold and calculating but massively and i do sometimes think oh i'm just i have been taken by some people who over the years have worked for me as a complete mug <laughs> i know because i'll go way over and above because i do care so much i really do but then when I'm on the track of something that needs to be done and and that's what we're working on is just getting this thing done, then it's like, well, why why doesn't the fan work on the machine? When the thing is overcome, I will sit and talk about, I mean, literally nothing for ages and ages. And I know all about everyone's families and who's doing what and illnesses and all this kind of thing. Um, but when I'm focused, I'm focused. And so I think that Thankfully, I've got a really, really good, tight team of people around me now that that understand. But the the advice that I'm giving to my daughter, who graduates this summer and is about to start her first job, is just try to understand the people that you're working with, you know, and and what's important to them and and what makes them tick, and you know, because you are going to get to this stage where you've got enough of me in, in you that you're going to get so focused that that's all you can see. And you do need people to realize there's more to you than than the focused, demonic, manic <laughs> person <laughs> in a good way. And through the, the journeys that you've both been on and all the things that you've learned and understood and the self-awareness that has come with that, do you feel like you fundamentally kind of almost rewired and, and um, become somebody different through that process because you recognize the need to change? Or are you fundamentally the same person that you've just kind of managed 
and tweaked your operating system, as it were, to be able to adapt to get the best out of people around you? That's a fantastic question, Dave. And I was sitting there thinking, which is it? And I'm going to use the classic, uh, it's both. There is, I think, with all people, there's just a journey based on your experiences over time, and it, sh- and it shapes you. Some of those experiences are more profound than others, and they shape you, shape you more. At my core, I would say there's a heavy dose of orientated around sort of outcome, striving. And what I've sort of come to realize is that, yeah, that there is that deep set drive in, within me. I, I, I've been really conscious of, a bit like Judy is saying, really conscious of not being seen to use these new set of skills to, to be seen just to serve the outcome. And I've now very much operate where it's a shared endeavor and we are very much enjoying the endeavor as well as as well as the outcome however at my core I still have this outcome very much sort of driven perspective so that's why I've said both Um, I'm very different to the way I work and operate back when I was 35 when I first took over the Olympic program and now 50 hugely different person whilst also still having at my core sort of a very focused outcome view of what we're trying to achieve. I think I'm I'm absolutely the same person, but I'm just aware of this really basic thing that I just didn't understand for way too long, which was not everybody sees things the same way as you see them. And... I mean, it came as such a shock to me because I really thought that everybody was viewing everything exactly the same way. So I just would have no need to explain anything because that would waste time. You know, we could just crack on and do it because obviously we had the same, we had the same sort of vision in our heads. So, you know, what's, what's the problem? So I would, I was so used to working on my own that, um, I'd sort of say to somebody, so we'll do this and this is what we need and just leave them to their own devices because I know that that's what I like. I I like to be left to just get on with it. Um, And then they'd come back with something that was like totally not what. And I just think, why would you do that? You know, what on what planet does that make sense? You know, where where would you even come up with that? Um, And then I think, well, it's because I didn't, think there was a need for me to explain it I think it's like the bake-off I just give people the ingredients and expect them to come out with this technical challenge at the end that would be ideal and I I wouldn't give them the instructions or the method um, at all and I think that they'd be really happy with that because they'd think that that would mean that I had faith in them to thrive I, I, I just hadn't explained things well, so I, I'm aware of that now, and not everybody sees things the same way, and not everybody thinks the same way, which is a really, really good thing. Because if everybody was um, like me and Danny, it wouldn't be nearly as nice a, a place. Sorry, Danny, I mean that in sort of like a really good way. <laughs> Didn't take it personally. Don't worry. As I've mentioned, sort of given my own experiences and sort of epiphany, for want of a better phrase. It's something that I've worked hard with, especially some sort of young, it's now young men, it was young women previously, sort of essentially raising that awareness that, you know, we all, we all carry our own particular lenses around with us and, 
and we all start by assuming everyone sees us, sees it in the same way and very quickly we start to generate this understanding that actually we all have different histories, different biographies and therefore we come and look at things in very different ways. And that with our Olympic programme with the athletes and with the staff it becomes a really quite healthy place. So we start to understand other people's behaviour in a much more informed way and we're less judgmental about it and more accepting of it. So um, that's something that I'm pretty proud about now. And if I compare that way of working to where we were in in the Beijing Olympic cycle way back between sort of 2005, 2008, so it's a very, very different environment now. And um, you mentioned the, the kind of male, female you've, coaching, and you've obviously experienced both. And certainly when I was in sport, there was a very active conversation around coaching women versus coaching men. And it, should there be differences in terms of how the coaches approach it? Should it be a different outlook and perspective on terms of how you motivate those groups of people, etc.? I'd be really interested to know your perspective on that, Danny, and yeah. then extend the question to Julie around, is that a conversation in the business world? Is there thought around, is particularly in leadership, leading women versus leading men, and is there a difference there in terms of how you would do that? And would you consider that as something that you need to um, factor into either your leadership skills or the team that you put together? So Danny, if I throw that to you first, what has been your experience of those two groups? Yeah, so so Catherine has you've just handed me this unexploded bomb, and um, <laughs> so yeah, so I I um I think within Western within the Western world and and sort of prevailing culture at the moment, it's almost a taboo subject to sort of differentiate between genders. I will talk from my own experience rather than claiming that this is some universal truth. My sense is that there is difference when you're talking about groups of, of men and groups of women. Certainly individual men, individual women, there will be a massive standard deviation and you, you absolutely work with the individual. My experience of working through three Olympic cycles with high-performing female teams and now, and now working through this, this Olympic, cycle, Olympic cycle with a high-performing male team that there is difference, that there absolutely is difference. It's not my phrase, but it's a phrase that I've used when I sort of asked this question, and it is a huge oversimplification, and almost a, we could take an entire podcast around this, but for, for my experience with the women, it was bond them to do battle, spend the time uh, investing in them understanding each other, finding the experiences that will unite and bond them and then they become this incredible bonded force that will then go and do battle. Apologies for the sort of war metaphor. Conversely with the men is almost the other way around is make them battle and that shared battle will will bond them. I spent a little bit of time listening to Steve Peters talk about the similar, so the psychiatrist who'd worked for British Cycling and, 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 and many other sports. There, there, is a, there is an element of endocrinology, hormones and how it affects the brain. And I think, again, in prevailing Western culture at the moment, it's taboo to sort of separate genders by talking about biological realities. Again, my experience, so... It was circa 14 years in the women's Olympic programme and now 
coming up to three years in the men's Olympic programme. I personally feel strongly that you see that play out. I would really challenge anybody who who has worked across a large group of high-performing female athletes that have to work together collectively as a team, and a large group of high-performing men. There may well be a huge set of socially constructed norms playing out there in terms of behaviours, but I do feel to to ignore years of evil, human evolution would be a little bit naive. Um, so I do believe that, that there is subtle differences when talking about groups of men and groups of women. Mm-hmm. Thank you uh, for navigating that so well. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully the form hasn't gone No, yeah. the form is all intact. Julie, how about you? As a In the working environment, is it a conversation? It's not a conversation. I mean, some people are fantastic at you know, galvanising people and they're fantastic at reading people. I I think I'm fantastic with dogs. (laughs) 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 And I find people very tricky. Um, So I I have a, a relatively small team that I'm very thankful that I understand them and I feel they understand me. Um, and they all understand their teams, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> uh, I I am very good now at knowing the things that that can really wind me up. I think that there is a certain amount, and maybe this is a sort of a female thing, but I feel like the business, you know, Cambridge Satchel is a business that I created. It feels very much like a third child to me. And and so when that business is threatened, then, you know, it it will be the the ferocious response that comes back. And I understand that not everybody is going to feel that way about the business. You know, when when I went to, um, we had our, our first big investment and we went to one of these sort of, CEO sort of retreat type things I really feel that there was a huge difference between the CEOs that were the founders of those businesses and the CEOs that are professional CEOs that just move around you know from one business to another and and to me the there are other ways of dividing rather than it being a a male female thing I feel like as long as people feel that they, you entirely have faith in them, you know, which I do in my senior team is just, there's nobody I would rather spend time with. And, and if things are, are tough, there's, there's no better group that, that I would have around me. Um, but they know that I feel that way. So they feel very sort of empowered in, in doing that. But I think it's, um, it's not just a male, female thing. Let's assume for a moment and start kind of projecting into the future that your trajectory continues, you know, your learning, your development, all that kind of stuff continues to uh, go on the same trajectory as it has been over the last four or five, six years. What's the next frontier for you both in terms of understanding, learning, whether it's for yourselves, your teams, your organizations? What is the next frontier for you both? There's sort of two areas for me, David, and, and, and tentatively first steps in these areas one one is 
trying to create an environment where people are separating out their performance from themselves as a person and in doing so that they're, they're being less protective of themselves or their sense of self realizing that we're still good people you know and we're not we're not a bad person because we've not performed well so trying to create in a more planned way an environment where people over time can sort of have that raising self-awareness that their outcome their performance is not all of who they are so i think they'll be more open to receiving um or seeking feedback they'll separate performance from their sense of self their sense of how they feel about themselves and i think that will actually raise the bar in terms of performance and that that sort of feeds into sort of the next area where i'd like to flip the prevailing culture around feedback I feel at the moment, I'm not sure about in other domains, but particularly in performance sport and culturally media reinforce this view around coaches um, that somehow the coach's job is to provide feedback all of the time and other people essentially passive recipients of feedback. I'd like to flip that culture. I'd like to make it an environment where people seek feedback rather than wait for feedback. And I think the two are interlinked because I feel, I feel quite strongly if people can separate out performance and outcome from their sense of self, they become much less protective, much more open to seeking feedback and I actually think we'll, as a result of that, have a more enjoyable and also more higher levels of performance. So that that's... Whether I'll crack that in two years, is, <laughs> I don't know. But um, that's that's something that I'm quite keen to try and become better as a lead of our program in creating that environment. I still come across of what I and and I and I see it in myself as well. You know, I can sometimes be protecting myself. You're sometimes nervous of the 360 that might be about to happen and nervous about uh, the Olympic debrief and you know because your your identity is wrapped up in that and you're sort of protecting yourself rather than I'm a good guy I know I, I, I'm, I, I do my best as I can I have you know, good good values I feel so you know if things don't turn out the way they are and performance isn't where it needs to be I won't confuse or conflate that with me being you know, a good, a good person. Um, and I'd like to create an environment where there's, there's more of that. You're fighting, I think, culture there. You know, we, we wrap our identities up with sort of outcome and, and being, you know, we are not a good person unless we win. So um, that's where I'd like to go in the next couple of years. Of course, like established absolutely in childhood, you know, you score the goal, you get the, the hero status, you're on the shoulders of everybody else and you're yeah. the, the, the poster child. Um, reward recognition and all that kind of stuff wrapped up into that. I mean, I've been involved in sort of this Olympic level for an awfully long time now, so it's very difficult for me to understand diff different contexts, but I, I really feel that's the stuff that gets in the way. Julie? There was definitely a, another dip uh, after we had our investment. You know, Cambridge Satchel started with £600. You know, it wasn't... It wasn't like we, we had loads of resource, but, but it was built up to the point of, of, of being worth 40 million in, you know, in five years. And then we had investment and suddenly we had money. And 
because we had money, all of a sudden we had some really experienced sort of corporate people, you know, the C-suite that would come in and and the CTO and the CFO and the CMO. And they had worked at giant places with 100 million turnover. And so it, it was it was at that point, I think, that the company really lost its identity and its way because whereas before it was really, really clear, we'd, we'd think, oh, we, we want to do something in a in a particular color and and I remember my mum um seeing this this book in Smith's and she bought the 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 notebook and and cut the square and we sent it to the tannery and said this is the most amazing color can you color match to that you know whereas suddenly then uh people would come in that say no 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 that's not the way it's done you know there's trend forecasting programs and there's color agencies and you're supposed to use a pantone reference and, and it was never complicated it was easy and it was more than that it was fun and i think that sense of joy really came through whereas suddenly it became very much work you know it was this is complicated you have to do this and have you a b tested it and and i think no because We'd, we'd try something and if it didn't work, we'd stop doing it. You know, it was just really simplistic. And by having years where overhead grew to the point it was unsustainable, it meant that suddenly we were in this position of not having much money again. And, and so, you know, I, I decided I was going to get rid of all of that C-suite. And, and there was a kind of a liberation that comes along with that because... Cambridge Settle was set up so I could send my children to a really good school. That was it. And I've done that, you know, and and I, I, I'm ready now. I'm paying for university now. And I feel like that's what it was set up to do. And so I'm not going to decide that I'm a failure if suddenly it doesn't go to 100 million turnover. You know, it it was set up for that purpose. But I think what people can do is keep moving the bar for success for themselves, you know, so that they never actually feel successful. And if I just look at it and think, this is what Cambridge Satchel was set up to do. Along the way, I got to do so much more. You know, how is it then that I could feel unsuccessful if suddenly the company wasn't profitable because of all this additional overhead? And I think for me, this last year has been a, a period where we've really just looked at it and thought, how do you go back to that point in the beginning where it was fun and authentic? I always wanted to make bags for interesting people that did interesting things and, and wanted to know about what it was that we made. Somewhere along the way, it became about you know, volume and, and doing it in a different way and trying to be everything for everybody. Uh, and then you, you kind of lose your identity a bit. So what the next few years and this last year have been for me, is just making really bold, brave decisions and saying, this is, this is what we are and this is what we're not. You know, we're not everything for everybody, but we are absolutely brilliant for the people that love a story and and love to know all about something and and to treasure something that that they've bought one thing we like to ask people 
around that kind of future state version. And we're going to make it about your, yourselves rather than your business or, or the team. Is to ask, how would you like to be described in two years' time in a way that people couldn't use those words about you right now? I'll jump in here and then Danny can come out with something that's much better thought out and, <laughs> and sound way more worthy. But I would love in two years for people to describe me as happy. You know, it's, that's the really simple thing for me because it's a strange time. You know, I've gone through so many tough times with the business and then, you know, the roller coaster, the brilliant times as well. But I realise now that my youngest has gone off to university and and Emily is graduating, they're on the right path. So I've done my bit there. I, I've got no excuse left to not think what do I actually want yeah. now. And I think that the business succeeding in a way that is truthful to the business I love doing that you know and I feel like gosh this is a really bold thing to be doing this in the way we did it in the early days but that is sort of the work thing I need to to figure out a better balance you know and I think my daughter's really great at this she's got you know whole things going with planners and colored pens and there's exercise there there's friends time there's family time there's work time and she is like the yoda of balance of life balance and i'm awful at it you know i'm sort of like who needs me to do something for them what does the business need oh look i'm really tired i'll just feed the dogs and go to bed and so i think that i'd really love in 2 years time to feel Look, I embraced that and I started valuing time for myself and what makes me happy. And now I'm balanced and and just more happy in that way. Nice. And what's, if I was in your team, if I was in your senior team, what's the one behaviour that I would see that was different that for you would represent that happiness? I think you'd see me going off and going back to Wales you know, because maybe just coming in one day and saying, this sounds mad, but I've started a pig farm as well, you know, that I've done something bold that is for no other reason than it makes me really, really happy. And I need to realize that you can take the blinkers off and do more than one thing. And now I don't have the two sort of children, I shouldn't call them children like 19 and 21. They'll always be a priority. Of course they will. But God, go and do something that's fun. Go and, you know, dye some alpacas in colours that you think are going to be great for next season and see them walking about and think, yeah, that those that colour selection works. You know, <laughs> I knew it would look good on a shelf and look, they're walking around the field and they look good together. You know, but just do something for the joy of doing something instead of trying to constantly be ticking boxes. Amazing. Thank you. Danny, how about you? Similar. Um, very similar. I would say where I've got to currently is I enjoy the sense of trying to achieve mastery and expertise. That brings me... When I hear the word happy, I think, yes, that, that, is, that is what I'm sort of... I want to be 
but often when I hear the word happy, I, I think of sort of more extroversion type um, behaviors. Whereas I think when I feel at my most content or in my real sweet spot where, you know, you almost that sense of flow, time will go past, I'll be loving what I'm doing. And, and, and this sort of in the moment, it's when I'm really in sort of mastery expertise. I just see it as challenge. I don't see it as threat. I just say, okay. Right. This curveball's come along. We're now having to spend six days and five nights in a government-controlled hotel in Kuala Lumpur, and we've got to come out of that and then play Malaysia and Japan in a short series of matches in heat and humidity. And okay, what are the cha- you know what are the what are the challenges of that, and how am we going to use the experience that I have gathered over the years to really good effect? And and I and I find that when I'm in that space, I love what I do. I really, really love it. I'm also I'm best with other people. I'm no longer the miserable, grumpy, unapproachable person that I spoke about. You know, early in the podcast, I'm much more, yeah, conversational, caring, out with outward with people. Um, I'm not seeing stuff as threat and protecting myself. I'm much more. Yeah, this is another challenge, and these are the type of experiences I can draw on and and looking for others to bring their value to the conversation. So. I'd like to think I'm somewhat down that route, but we all slip, we all falter, we all have moments of it becomes threat and you, you know, the barriers go up and you protect yourself a little bit. I'd just like to have less of those. Yeah, that's what hopefully it would look like in a couple of years' time. It's been a huge privilege to be able to, to have this conversation with you guys and, and thank you so much for being so open and honest. Um, Catherine's going to do a, a quick summary of what she's heard in a moment. But just before we hear from her, I'm really keen. I, I love asking this question. As a result of spending this time together, what have you either re-remembered, realized or uh, come up with that you're going to do differently as a result of this conversation? Um, so Julie, I'm going to throw it to you first. What's surfaced and, and what's different for you? This is going to sound awful. I haven't actually spent very much time talking to people that I don't know <laughs> in the last year. You know, I've been sort of trying to, my my mum is um, 82 and so I've been self-isolating for a long, long time. And um, I, I speak to people in work you know, constantly, but I haven't been outside that bubble of family and work. And uh, I was not a sporty person at all in school. And so it's just been an absolute pleasure um, and a real sort of privilege for me to to have the chat with the three of, of you people that are different to people I come across every day. And I think I need to make an effort to widen my bubble because <laughs> you're actually really, really nice. <laughs> so, and, and it's just interesting to hear that other people have come across similar sort of dips, but in very different worlds, you know, um, and to see how they've coped with it because it is very easy to, to just think, oh my gosh, this was me, this was my failing, you know, and now I have to come back from it and I try and sort of bounce back but hearing that other people go through these things as well is is really really helpful thanks Julie Danny yeah I'm, I'm thinking of pig farming now 
um, <laughs> or maybe coloured llamas. In all seriousness, I think, um, yeah, sometimes having, uh, listen, as, as Judy says, when you, when you hear other people talk and they talk about, you know, maybe just doing something a little bit mad and eclectic, you realise we all think we all think those things. So I, I have some romantic notion of doing some enormous bikepacking trip across, you know, Europe. The re- reality is I have a wife and two young children and I'm away with work a lot, so I think the chances of that are zero. But listening to Jimmy talk about, maybe I should have a pig farm in somewhere. I think allowing yourself or, or allowing myself to have a little bit of escapism from time to time is, is um, something I need to not worry about and just be happy having a bit of escapism and I know that seems a bit odd given the nature of the podcast but I remember I was really struck when Julie started talking about that thinking yeah yeah just sometimes it's good to have some random sort of things thinking about and so a bit bit more of that I think. Very nice well I guess my summary from um, listening to you both and it's always really interesting to see how it does stitch itself together and thank you both for being so open but I think that the overriding things for me was a, a kind of masterclass in self-awareness and understanding um, yourself your identity and actually a big chunk of humility I heard from both of you within that in terms of recognizing at different points that you maybe didn't have all the answers you weren't doing it in the best way to serve your business or your team and actually being brave enough to work on yourselves or get the right team around you or change the team if you needed to and you know all of those things which I think many people either double down on their previous identity and just stick to that or they they feel like it has been a failure and they walk away and find something else because that's the easier option so I think the thing that really stuck with me from both of you is bravery and it demonstrated itself in different ways but a really inspiring story of courage and bravery so thank you very much. Julie and Danny and Catherine, thank you so much for another awesome uh, podcast of What Does It Take to Win? And uh, thank you too for listening in and hopefully taking some uh, amazing nuggets from both of these incredible performers, dips and all. (laughs) 